Good afternoon, everyone. In the United States in 2010, the average tax burden per person was a little over 28% of gross income. According to, according to a report published at taxfoundation.org. This 28% of gross income is based on the proportion of taxes collected as opposed to the nation's gross domestic product. It includes all persons in the United States, whether they have an income or not. Taxes come in many different forms in our country, including federal, state, and local income taxes sales taxes, capital gains taxes, estate taxes, excise taxes, property taxes, fuel taxes, highway taxes in addition to fuel taxes, telephone taxes, alcohol taxes, cigarette taxes, soft drink taxes, tourism taxes, and others. In many jurisdictions, Every time you shop at a store, you pay up to 10% or more in sales taxes in addition to the purchase price of the merchandise. So just with that tax alone, depending on where you live, you may be paying 10% tax on anything that you happen to purchase, at least in that community. The tax on wage earners in the United States who earn up to $132,900 per year is 15.3% in Social Security and Medicare taxes, and that includes the part contributed by employers who could otherwise pay the difference directly in wages. And that 15.3% is in addition to income taxes and other payroll taxes, of which there are several. This is a statement from a document called the U.S. Tax Burden on Labor 2019, published also by taxfoundation.org. And it says, quote, after accounting for sales taxes, which reduce the purchasing power of earnings, the tax wedge in the United States is 31.5%, end quote. Now that 31.5% is the average tax burden for wage earners in the United States. Now, keep in mind that not everybody in the United States is a wage earner. There are those who are unemployed, there are those who don't uh, work for wages, and there are those who do other things besides uh, for, for an income besides work for wages. But this is the average tax burden for wage earners in the United States, 31.5%, at least according to their sti statistics. Now, because of the structure of the tax code, not everyone pays the same percentage of his or her income in taxes. Some wage earners actually may pay around half of their income in taxes. But regardless of your relative income, if you are a wage earner, you are paying a significant amount of your income in taxes of one kind or another. Many countries have a higher average tax burden than uh, the United States as a percentage of income. Now, no doubt many of the services received from various levels of government paid for by such taxes are a benefit, but along with those services, there's no doubt a great deal of waste and useless overhead. God is the creator of all living things. When he established his government over Israel under the Old Covenant, he too established a tax system. His system was based on a tenth or a tithe of one's income. The income being 
the increase over expenses of what he had earned. And then along with the tithe was certain offerings which varied according to one's circumstances. Paul Kendall gave a sermonette recently discussing the Holy Day offerings indicated in Scripture. In today's sermon, I want to discuss the tithing system outlined in the Bible. Now, some of, for some of you, this information may be familiar. For others, it perhaps will not be. Most people, even most professing Christians, are not very familiar with God's system of tithes and offerings. But it's important that we understand what God's system is and how it applies to us as members of the Church of God. Several years ago, I gave a sermon entitled Christian Tithing. And in that sermon, I discussed some principles related to tithing and some of the controversies related to tithing. And I don't intend to repeat today everything I covered in that sermon, but it is available on our website, cogmessenger.org, if you want to review it. One thing I did point out in the previous sermon is that God does not need our money. God said to Job in Job 41 and verse 11, Job 41 and verse 11, God said, everything under heaven is mine. So, everything belongs to God. In the final analysis, in Psalm 50 and verse 10, Psalm 50, beginning of verse 10, we read, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all its fullness. So, what we have actually already belongs to God. He owns it. But He allows us to benefit from it, to, in a sense, own some of it ourselves. And He allows us to give some of it back to Him so that we can share in His work so that we can learn the principles of giving and honoring God with our substance. So God does not want what's ours, but He wants us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 14 to the Corinthians, Paul said, I do not seek yours, but you. Paul, the apostle, was not out to get their money. He was more interested in helping to redeem their lives by teaching them what is necessary for salvation. And God wants us, in fact, we belong to God in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 19, we read, Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit in you, which you have from God, and you are not of yourselves? You were bought with a price. Then glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are of God. We not only were created by God, we were also purchased by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ in terms of salvation. And then we are commanded to glorify God in bodies and spirit which are of God. We came from God. We belong to God in several different ways. And since we are God's, everything that we have is also God's. How does God tell us to render honor to Him? Well, one of the ways we read in Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3 and verse 9, Proverbs 3 and verse 9 it says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. 
And then it goes on to say in verse 10, So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So, God blesses those who honor Him in the long run. And one of the keys to receiving God's blessings is to give honor to Him if we want to at least uh, profit in the long term. And God's Word gives us, gives us specific instructions on how we are to honor God with our possessions. There are particular requirements the, that He has set before us that show us how we are to honor Him with our possessions. Abraham honored God by giving a tithe or a tenth of the possessions to the high priest of God as recorded in Genesis 14 beginning in verse 18. Genesis 14 verse 18 it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham or Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice that God was spoken of here as being the possessor or the owner of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the book of Hebrews makes it even more clear that Abraham gave a tithe or a tenth to God. He gave it to the high priest of God, Melchizedek, as, a, as, a, as an offering to God. And I believe Mr. Kendall also mentioned uh, in a sermon recently that Melchizedek was in fact Jesus Christ in the person of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And the author of the book of Hebrews, whom I believe to be Paul, wrote in Hebrews 7 and verse 4, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abram Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So Abraham tithed. He understood this principle of tithing. The, the, the tithing principle predates the Old Covenant. Jacob, who was one of the patriarchs, the grandson of Abraham, also pledged to God in Genesis 28, verse 22, Genesis 28, verse 22, of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So, Jacob promised to give to God a tenth of what he was given, whatever it was. Tithing and giving offerings to God should be approached as an act of worship and honor toward God because that is if it's being done in the proper uh, spirit, the proper understanding, that is in fact what it is. Now today, my primary purpose in this sermon is to show that you that there are three different tithes prescribed in the Bible. This truth has been taught consistently in the Church of God for many years, both in the Worldwide Church of God before its apostasy and by other Church of God fellowships. Now using this as a pretext, some critics have, have alleged that the Church requires members to pay 30% of their income to the Church. That charge is completely false, as we will see in this sermon. But let's take a look at where this authority behind the tithing system actually lies. God is the author of the tithe system and it is God's Word that we are bound by. The job of the church, viewing the church as a fellowship of believers, 
the job of the church is to communicate to the members what God himself requires of them. It's not a matter of what the church requires, it's what God requires. Now no one, so far as I know, has ever been arrested by the church for not paying a tithe. Much less than 30% of one's income to the church. I know of only a few instances of the church taking action against members for not paying a tithe to the church. And that involved employees of the church who were not tithing. And actually, I only know of one specific case in which a particular employee who was a member of the church also was fired from his employment when it was discovered that he was not tithing. So, the church itself as a fellowship of believers does not require anyone to tithe even 10% of his income. Unless, in some cases, he happens to be an employee of the church. Tithing is a matter of faith. If you believe in the God of the Bible, and if you understand that God requires you to tithe, you will do it out of faith and obedience to God, not because the church requires it of you. And the church, as we will see, has never taught that anyone is obligated to give 30% of his income to the church. Now we might contrast that, however, with human governments like that of the United States that claim on average more than 30% of a wage earner's income in taxes. The word tithe is from an old English word, tagatha, or teogatha, which means a tenth. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for tithe is ma'aser, which also means Tenth, in the New Testament, the Greek word dekatao, in various forms, also means to give or to receive a tenth. So a tithe is just a different way of saying a tenth. Three different tithes are distinguished in the Bible, primarily by the use to which each of these is put. Each has a distinctly different purpose. And the third of these tithes is required only two out of seven years rather than every year. Some have claimed that the Bible does not use the terms first tithe, second tithe, and third tithe, and therefore it's not valid to teach that there are three tithes in the Bible. It is true that the Bible does not use those specific terms. These are terms of convenience that have been used by others commenting on the biblical tithes of which there are three. And those three tithes are distinguished by the distinct use to which each one is put as specified in Scripture. We read that a tenth or a tithe of all that was produced in the land is holy to God. And it is to be set aside and offered to God. In Leviticus 27 and verse 30, Leviticus 27 verse 30, it says, All the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. Notice it says, All the tithe of the land is holy to the Lord. In Leviticus 27 and verse 32, it says concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. So, Israel was primarily an agrarian economy. All the land produced was to be, a tenth of it was to be holy to God. Now that doesn't mean it was only agricultural produce and livestock that was to be tithed on, and we won't go into that in detail right now, but uh, 
whatever the land produced, a tenth of it was holy to God. And it was to be sanctified for God's use. Now, what belonged to God in that sense as holy to Him, the tenth was in turn given by God to the Levites. The Levites were one of the tribes of Israel, one of the 13 tribes of Israel, or 12 tribes, however you want to look at it. But it was one of the tribes of Israel, and the Levites were appointed to be God's ministers under the Old Covenant. And a tenth of the produce of the land was to be given to them as their reward for the work of the tabernacle. When God gave Israel His government, He instituted the tithing system that we find in the Old Testament to support that government. The government was a theocracy with God as king and the Levites and priests as His servants to administer the government along with judges who were appointed who also had a role to play. And under the Old Covenant, the tenth or the tithe given to the Levites was their inheritance in place of a land inheritance like that given to the other tribes. When Israel came into the land, the land was divided amongst the tribes and every family received uh, an inheritance. Every every one of the tribes was given a, a specific portion of the land and then the land was divided up among the families. But the Levites, the tribe of the Levites, did not were not given a land inheritance as the other tribes were. Instead, they were given the tenth, the tithe, a tenth of the produce of the land as their compensation for the work of the ministry of the tabernacle under the Old Covenant. As we read in Numbers 18 and verse 21, Numbers 18 and verse 21, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they performed, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Now notice the entirety of this tenth, this particular tithe, was to be given to the Levites as you might say their wages in return for the work which they performed. It was their inheritance. It belonged to them. A full tenth of the produce of the land which was to be holy to God. In Numbers 18 verse 24 Numbers 18 verse 24 goes on to say for the tithes of the children of Israel which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord. Notice that when they were giving these tithes, they were to have in mind that the tithes were being given not to men, not necessarily uh, to the Levites alone. They were given as an offering to God. And so he says, the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given, that is, God has given, to the Levites as an inheritance. So, in a sense, the tithes went first to God, and then He gave them back to the Levites. Therefore I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. That is, no land inheritance. They were given some cities to dwell in, but they had no land to farm and so forth as the other tribes did. So it's very clear what this tithe that we might for convenience call the first tithe was to be used for. It was to be given to the Levites to support their work of administering the service of the tabernacle as ministers to God. 
Now, in addition to this tithe, there was another tithe, which we, we might call a second tithe, commanded. And the purpose for this tithe was entirely different, and its use was completely different. This tithe was not to be given to the Levites, although some of it might be shared with them, as we'll see. But it was primarily to be consumed by the tithe payer and his family and others that he shared with at the sanctuary or where God had placed his name as a place of assembly and worship. This is not the first tithe because it was not given to the Levites but it rather served an entirely different purpose. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, it says, You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put His name for His dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn, the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So among the things that they were to consume here, when they went to the sanctuary, the place of the central place of worship, was a tithe. In the Kyle and Delich commentary on Deuteronomy twelve verses six through nine is this comment quote this second tenth, notice it says this second tenth belonged in great part to the donors themselves since it was consumed in sacrificial meals to which only poor and needy persons were invited. Now in reality, the poor and needy were not to be excluded, but all, whether they were poor or not, shared in the rejoicing of the feast consisting of the tithe specified for that purpose along with other offerings including the firstborn and additional offerings that were made to God at the feasts. In Deuteronomy 12 and verse 17 Deuteronomy 12 beginning with verse 17 it says you may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil of the firstborn of your herd or your flock or any of your offerings which you vow of your free will offerings or the heave offering of your hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. All of the sacrifices under the Old Covenant were to be taken to the sanctuary to be offered to God and eaten. There are only a, a few exceptions to that, which were very rare exceptions, which I won't go into in detail right now. But all sacrifices were to be eaten before God in the central place of worship, and which later on amounted to the city of Jerusalem. And uh, this particular tithe was also to be taken there to be consumed. It says, You must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. So, the tithe was to be shared along with peace offerings and so forth with the entire family and servants and Levites were to be invited too to partake of the festal meals.
In fact, the Levites were specifically given portions of some of those sacrifices. In Deuteronomy 14, in Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, Deuteronomy 14, beginning with verse 22, it says, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Notice this was an annual tithe. And you shall eat it before the Lord your God. Notice in this, this tithe, it doesn't say you are to give it to the Levites. He said you shall tithe of the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year and you shall eat it. You shall eat the tithe, this particular tithe, before the Lord your God in the place where He chooses to make His name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil are the firstborn of your herds and flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put His name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So again, this was a tithe which they were to consume. And Levites were to be included in the festal meals. But notice the distinctly different purpose to which this second tithe, as we'll call it, was put. It was mostly consumed by the people themselves along with their households. Now, this second tithe is the manner in which the annual festivals were to be afforded by those who attended them. Because they were required to attend festivals three times a year. And for those who were able to make the journey, these festivals were to be observed in the place where God's physical presence or God's presence was, uh, was uh, associated with and that was the tabernacle and later on the temple in Jerusalem. And the, the first festival of the, on the sacred calendar lasted for eight days, including Passover and the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then came the Feast of Pentecost later on in the early summer. And then the fall festivals included actually several festivals which lasted uh, over a period of nearly a month altogether. And so they were to use this tithe or the money they derived from the tithe to pay for their expenses associated with the feast or to eat the offerings and so forth that they the tithe and the other offerings that they brought with them. In Deuteronomy 16 verse 5 Deuteronomy 16 verse 5 it says you may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you. Now notice here the Passover could not be sacrificed just anywhere. It says, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make His name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place 
which the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. So the Passover under the Old Covenant was to be sacrificed only at the sanctuary where the tabernacle was because that's where all of the sacrifices, as I said before with certain rare exceptions, was to be sacrificed at the tabernacle or later the temple in Jerusalem. So, then came the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the heels of the Passover and then several weeks later came Pentecost seven weeks later actually and then later on in the fall were the fall festivals. In Deuteronomy 16 and verse 8 Deuteronomy 16 and verse 8 it says six days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are among you. At the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. So notice that everyone was to be included in the festal activities. It was an occasion not only for rejoicing and consuming the blessings that God has given you, but also for sharing part of it with others. In verse 13 it says, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite to the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep the sacred feast of the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you shall surely rejoice. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So notice it says these three times a year, these three festival seasons, and he mentions, uh, he, he categorizes them as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, but they also actually included other feasts that occurred around the same time, including the Passover, and the Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Atonement, and the, what we call the Last Great Day as well, which are enumerated elsewhere. The Feast of Trumpets and Tabernacles are mentioned in Nehemiah 8, where it describes some of the activities that were conducted for the keeping of the feast. On the Day of Trumpets, it tells us in Nehemiah 8, beginning with verse 8, speaking of Nehemiah and other leaders there who were probably mostly if not altogether Levites but it says uh, beginning with verse 8 so they read distinctly from the book and the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them understand the, the reading so they were going through the scriptures reading and explaining the scriptures having a service in other words worship service and Nehemiah, who was, a, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. It had been a long time since they had uh, been able to be in Jerusalem and worship God in this manner. Then he said to them, Go your way, Eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send the portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. 
Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. And then it goes on later in that chapter to discuss the Feast of Tabernacles, which followed on the heels of the Feast of Trumpets and Atonement. So this second tithe, as we'll call it, was customarily used at the pilgrim feasts, as they are called, when the Israelites went up to the sanctuary to rejoice before God as commanded. In Exodus 23, Exodus 23 and verse 15, it says, You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread you shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. When you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field three times, in the year all your mail shall appear before the Lord God. So, all who were able, who were, who were uh, within uh, close enough proximity to the place of worship that they could be there for the feast were expected to be there. And especially the males. The females were not excluded, but the males representing the families at least were to be at these feasts. In Exodus 34, beginning with verse 22, Exodus 34 and verse 22, And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. Now in Leviticus chapter 23, are listed all of the annual feasts and the annual Sabbaths that are commanded in these three seasons of the year. They're each one enumerated in that chapter. And these were occurred in three distinct festival seasons and actually included uh, seven annual Sabbaths and, and uh, I believe seven annual feasts. Numbers 28 and 29. Those chapters also list the annual feasts and the national sacrifices that were offered in conjunction with the feasts or the public offerings as they're, as they're sometimes referred to as distinct from personal offerings. So, that was the purpose of the second tithe to, you might say, finance the festivals for the people attending. A third tithe was commanded to be used for yet another distinct purpose. Now the first tithe, as we'll call it, was to be given to the Levites as their inheritance, as we've seen, as they had no land inheritance of their own except for the cities that were given to them for them to inhabit. Another tithe, the second tithe, was to be eaten at the festivals that were held at specific times of the year. As we read. But yet another tithe was required for another distinct purpose and that was to help support the poor of the land. Now remember... The second tithe was to be taken to the place where the Lord God had chosen to place His name. Deuteronomy 12 verse 5 it says, You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put His name for His dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and so forth, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And that's the second tithe. But notice another tithe is mentioned in Deuteronomy 14 
beginning with verse 28. And it says, at the end of every third year, now the other tithes were to be set aside every year, at the end of every third year you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. Now notice this tithe was not to be taken someplace else. It was not to be given to the Levites. It was not to be taken to the place where the tabernacle or the temple was. It was to be stored up within the gates, within the within the uh, various uh, population centers throughout the land. And then it says, and the Levite because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and to the stranger, and to the fatherless, and to the widow who are within your gates, may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. And then in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. There was a seven-year cycle. for the economy of Israel and that every seventh year was a was a release of debts and so of those seven of each seven year cycle every third year was the year for the the tithe that was given to the poor in other words two years out of seven of this cycle of seven years. They were to set aside a tithe and that was to be given to the poor of the land. Now, the Levites often in Israel tended to be poor. Evidently, God foresaw that. And the main reason that they were poor is because most, uh, most of the people during much of the history of Israel never did not tithe properly. And so the Levites were often poor and somewhat destitute. Also mentioned here is the stranger, the fatherless, in other words, orphans and widows. People who were likely to be impoverished. That, that's what the we, we might call this the third tithe. But that's what it was for. It was, it was a kind of a welfare program for those who were destitute. Through no fault of their own. And as I mentioned, this third tithe was paid every third year out of a seven-year cycle so that every seven years there would be two years of a third tithe which was to be stored up and distributed to the poor. And the financial year in Israel was calculated from fall to fall. As we read in Leviticus 25, beginning verse 8, Leviticus 25, verse 8, it says you should count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself Seven times seven years, the time of the seventh Sabbath of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year. And this was a cycle of fifty years. Seven years uh, or seven uh, years uh, seven year cycles uh, seven times over plus one more year the 50th year which was the jubilee year but notice when the when the uh, jubilee year began it says you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants and it shall be a jubilee year 
to you, for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. Now, technically, the years began the the years began with the new, the uh, months began with the new moon, and the fiftieth year would begin on the feast of uh, trumpets. But it was actually proclaimed on the Day of Atonement, which came ten days later. And that there's a symbolism behind that, which I won't go into in detail right now. So we we see here described clearly in the Bible three distinct tithes, each one different and to be used for an entirely different purpose from the others. The Jews commonly understood and still do today understand the fact that there are three different tithes enjoined in the law. Although the application of the tithing law among various Jewish communities may differ in some respects from the scriptural requirements. Here is what the Jewish Encyclopedia article on the tithe says in part. This is from the Jewish Encyclopedia in their article on the tithe, quote, according to the rabbis, the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy are complementary to each other. Consequently, there can be no contradiction between them. There's no way you can, re uh, interrupting here, there's no way you can regard all these tithes as the same tithe without uh, without uh, obvious contradictions in what the scriptures tell us. goes on to say, thus there were three kinds of tithes. This is from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Thus there were three kinds of tithes. One, that given to the Levites as stated in Numbers 18, verse 21 and so forth and termed the first tithe or Ma'asir Rishon. This was a term used among the Jews themselves. Secondly, the tithe which was to be taken to Jerusalem and there consumed by the landowner and his family, which was termed the second tithe, Ma'asir Shinai, it being taken from what remained after the first tithe had been appropriated. And three, that given to the poor, Ma'asir Anai. In other words, there were three tithes. The book of Tobit, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, describes how the tithing laws were understood and observed by a scrupulous Israelite with a time setting for the story of around 700 B.C. Now, the story may actually have been written much later and it's probably a, a fictional story. But nevertheless, it does give us information about how the tithing system was observed by scrupulous Israelites whenever this was actually written. And it was written at least probably a couple of centuries before Christ, if not earlier. Here it states, quote, I was the only one in my family who regularly went to Jerusalem to celebrate the religious festivals as the law of Moses commands everyone to do. Now, notice right here we see a problem. Here is a, an Israelite who says he was the only one in his family who actually obeyed God's commandments in terms of the pilgrim festivals. And then it goes on to describe what he did. Quote, he said, I would hurry off to Jerusalem with the first part of my harvest, the firstborn of my animals, and a tenth of my cattle and the freshly clipped wool for my sheep. Then I would stand before the altar in the temple and give these offerings to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. I would give a tenth of my grain, wine, olive oil, pomegranates, pigs, and other fruits to the Levites who served God in Jerusalem. 
every year except the seventh year when the land was at rest, I would sell a second tenth of my possessions and spend the money in Jerusalem on the festival meal. Now I want to interject something here. He says he did not uh, do this in the uh, seventh year, which was the land Sabbath year, when the land rested. That the law actually requires the festivals to be kept every year, including the seventh year. As we read in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 10, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 10, it says, Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, in the place which He chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So actually, the seventh year was the year when not just the males, but the entire household were in fact required to attend the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, to hear the Word of God explained. Going on, however, with the book of Tobit, it says, quote, but every third year, I would give a third tithe to widows and orphans and to foreigners living among my people. And we would eat the festival meal together. I did this in keeping with the law of Moses, which Deborah, the mother of my grandparents, and of my grandfather, and Anil had taught me to obey. I had been left an orphan when my father died. End quote. Now, we also see the tithing laws summed up in the, in the, the uh, antiquities by Josephus, written in the first century AD. And here's how Josephus explains the tithing system. <clears throat> Quote, and this, by the way, is from uh, Book 4 of Antiquities. Quote, Moses appointed that the people should pay the tithe of their annual fruits of the earth, both to the Levites and to the priests. And this is what that tribe receives of the multitude. So, he says, a tithe of their annual fruits was given to the priests and the Levites. Of course, the Levites included the priests. Then he says, later on, quote, let there be taken out of your fruits a tenth. Besides that, which you have allotted to give to the priests and Levites, this you may indeed sell in the country, but it is to be used in those feasts and sacrifices that are to be celebrated in the holy city. For it is fit that you should enjoy those fruits of the earth which God gives you to possess, so as may be to the honor of the donor. Notice Josephus speaks of the tithe given to the priests and Levites and then an additional tithe which could in fact be sold but it was to be used for the feasts celebrated in Jerusalem. The pilgrim feasts they were called. Then he says later on quote besides those two tithes which I've already said you are to pay every year the one for the Levites the other for the festivals you are to bring every third year a third tithe to be distributed to those that want to women also that are widows and to children that are orphans end quote so we see clearly there are three tithes each one for a different use. The first tithe is given for the work of the ministry. The second tithe is used to observe the feast commanded by God at specific times of the year. And the second tithe is used mostly by the families of those who have set it aside, but also to be shared with others. 
The third tithe is to be set aside two out of seven years to provide for the poor. Now, God requires us to tithe on our increase. That is, if, if you're the one doing the tithing, it, you tithe on what is increased to you. In other words, your net income. Above and beyond the expenses required to earn that income. In other words, if you're a farmer and you plant a bushel of wheat, for example, and you reap 11 bushels of wheat, your increase is 10 bushels because you you had an increase of only 10 bushels because one bushel was required for seed. Now that would also, if you're, you know, you have farm equipment and have to buy fuel and things like that, you would also de uh, subtract that as part of the cost of doing business. And the same principle would work in whatever you do for a living, no matter what it is. Now, if the government takes a portion of what you earn, it's difficult for me to see how that could be considered increase to you since it is taken away from you by the government. It's something you have no choice in unless you want to stay out of prison. I mean, I should say unless you want to go to prison. And you have no say-so over how that money is spent. So, it would seem that the government's responsibility, it is the government's responsibility to give God his portion of what they have claimed or what they have taken away from you, the wage earner or the farmer or whatever. Now this has been viewed in different ways in the church. At times you've been required to pay tithes on your gross income, including uh, the money you pay in taxes. Other times you've been, uh, the, the uh, church has deemed it necessary to pay only on net income. And I believe the correct decision is to, uh, that you are required to pay on your net income, not your gross before taxes. However, there are some nuances to this general principle that may need to be considered further and discussed further, which I won't go into detail right now. And there are other matters regarding the administration of tithing that questions that come up that need to be discussed, which I'll perhaps do in another sermon. But I want to comment on a falsehood that has been circulating for some time in certain circles. It's been claimed by some that in the church of God, the ministers are not required to pay third time. Now, I was a student at Ambassador College for four years. I've served in the ministry for 40 years or more. And no one in authority ever told me that ministers are not required to pay third time except for the fact that ministers who were not paid a salary for their service to the church were to be exempted from third tithe in consideration of the fact that in most cases such ministers not being paid a salary were making a considerable financial sacrifice to serve in the ministry without compensation. Ministers who were employed by the church and paid a salary have always been expected to pay third tithe as far as I know. And that's always been my understanding and I've never heard any, any ministers say anything different from that. And if, if they did say that, they were wrong. 
As I pointed out in the beginning of this sermon, the United, in the United States, the average wage earner pays more than 30% of his income in taxes to the government. God requires 10% for the financial support of his church. And I haven't gone into the arguments over whether tithing applies in the New Testament or not. We'll discuss that at a later time, perhaps, but I think we have discussed it before, but God requires... 10% for the financial support of the church. He requires an average of 2.86% approximately for the support of the poor if you figure it on an annualized basis. The third tithe on an annualized basis would be about 2.86% which means that on an annualized basis what God requires of the members is just over 12.8% in support of the church and the support of the poor associated with the church. Plus another 10% for you to enjoy at the festivals. Now, given the tax burden along with tithing, I'm not going to pretend that tithing is something that is necessarily easy to do or that does not require a sacrifice. It does, in fact, require sacrifices and may not necessarily be convenient and at times could be challenging and difficult, especially for those with limited incomes. By the way, if you're a person who uh, is uh, would be eligible to receive third tithe or would be placed into that status by by paying third tithe, you would not be required to pay third tithe. The third tithe was to be given to the poor. It wasn't to be taken from the poor. But uh, in any case, tithing can be challenging and difficult. But God's system is just. And we as members of His church need to practice tithing as God intends. 